and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast with me, Dr. Sally LePage. In this episode, we're looking at the future of food. With climate change making crop harvests more unpredictable and fresh water becoming a more scarce resource, what are geneticists doing to make sure we will still have food on our plates? How often do you think about food? And I don't just mean thinking about what you're having for dinner or thinking about whether or not to have that bar of chocolate. How often do you think about where the food on your plate comes from, how it was grown or reared, and how much you can depend on that food being available in the future? Food security is an ever-increasing problem for the planet. You've probably already noticed that your weekly food shop at the supermarket is costing a lot more than it used to. Wheat in particular is in short supply. Yes, the war in Ukraine has been a factor, as Russia and Ukraine are the first and fifth largest exporters of wheat in the world. But it's not the only factor. In 2021, heat waves and droughts reduced wheat yields in the US and Canada, the second and third largest wheat exporters. And in the same year, excessive rain flooded crops in China. This year, India decided to ban the export of wheat as record-breaking heat waves caused widespread crop failures. And swathes of Pakistan are still underwater, right when farmers would normally be planting next year's crop. Clearly, we need to make wheat a more reliable and resilient crop in the face of our ever-changing climate. And that's where geneticists like Dr Hannah Rees from the Earlham Institute in Norwich come in. Katani sat down with Hannah to find out how understanding the basic biology of wheat is helping us produce a more future-proof plant. What is wheat to the world in terms of a crop? Wheat as a whole accounts for about 20% of the calories that we eat as a human race across the world. So it's really important that we know everything there is to know about it in terms of its biology, but also that we are looking at how to increase yields and make that sustainable for the future. So what are some of the challenges that we face with trying to grow wheat and meet this demand as the world is changing around us? Well, a lot of the demand for wheat comes from the switch to Western diet. So the Western diet is very much based around wheat. And rather than being focused on rice, a lot of Asian communities are now switching to more wheat centric diets. So the demand for wheat is really increasing. But also wheat is really good at being able to be grown all over the world. So wheat is very much a global crop but it faces challenges. So if you don't get predictable rainfall at critical parts of the wheat development, you can have catastrophic crashes in crop yields. And that is one of the sort of worrying things about climate change as we get more unpredictable weather patterns. Can we actually design resilient wheat? So switching from a focus of just increasing wheat yields at any cost to having wheat that's really robust to fluctuating weather conditions, such as drought, but also flooding and unpredictable patterns, basically. 
So you're coming at understanding wheat from understanding the body clock of wheat. Now, I think we can all understand that plants, they're seasonal. They grow at certain times of the year. They don't grow at other times of the year. You harvest them at certain times of the year. And you can think about things like flowers that come out at certain times of the day. But I'd never really thought of wheat as having like a body clock, I guess, a plant clock. So what's going on here? What is wheat's clock? What's its day like? So actually having a circadian clock is really important for plants because plants make their energy from sunlight and being able to predict when dawn is going to happen in advance of it happening makes plants really efficient. So if you can forecast in an hour, there will be light, you can get ready and prepare for the onset of light. And it makes the plants really a lot more efficient in terms of photosynthesis. So we're not talking about the sun comes out and the plant wakes up. This is actually a plant getting ready to wake up. So it's running on some kind of underlying cycle. Yeah, exactly. You can equate it more towards you getting hungry an hour before lunchtime. Like you haven't seen your food yet, but you know it's coming. And that's a similar thing for the plant. So what do we know about the wheat clock? Like what makes up a clock inside an organism? So this is a question that a lot of people ask me is, you know, how can plants have a clock without a brain? And it's really interesting. Within each cell in a plant, it has its own molecular oscillator. So it has its own mini clock inside each cell in the plant. And these genetic loops are based on transcriptional, translational feedback loops. So you have a gene that is transcribed into mRNA, and then that mRNA is translated into a protein. And in the case of this molecular oscillator, that protein sits in front of a target gene and represses it. So these are transcription factors. And what happens at the most basic level is you've got a nighttime gene and a daytime gene, and the nighttime protein sits on the daytime gene and represses it, stops it from being expressed. And the daytime protein does the same to the nighttime gene. So you have this tick-tock of proteins repressing the genes for the nighttime and vice versa. And this is at the very most basic level. In plants, you have many interconnected oscillators that all interact with each other. But this is the premise of actually the clock in plants, but also in insects, in humans, in mammals, they all have these negative feedback loops. So something just builds up and builds up and builds up, and then it effectively turns itself off by turning something else on that builds up and builds up and builds up and, and then round and round and round we go. Yes. So the input to this, it does feed in from external stimuli. So light will have an impact on these genes being turned on and off. Temperature is another stimulus that will allow the expression of certain genes and set up this rhythm. But the important thing is that these rhythms persist even when you remove all external stimuli. So if you put plants in a completely dark box, they still have this tick-tock rhythm that's derived from genes being expressed in the perceived day or night. So what is this clock actually controlling? I can understand that maybe you'd want to control your responses to light. Light runs on a, a day-night cycle. But what do we know about what kinds of processes in wheat are affected by this clock? Mm -hmm. So the clock is really prolific. It has an enormously powerful effect on gene expression throughout the plant. We know that around a third of genes are actually 
rhythmically expressed. They'll have a higher expression at a certain time in the day to a different time in the day. And these are really agriculturally important genes as well. So they are genes that are regulating flowering time. They are genes that are regulating responses to cold and to heat. And actually, there are genes which effectively make sunscreen for the plant in advance of daylight happening. So it's already protected by the time day hits. There are genes which make the plant really unpalatable towards caterpillars. So the plant knows when the caterpillars are going to wake up. And the plant thinks, right, I need to increase my production of these really nasty tasting chemicals so that I'm less likely to be eaten. And photosynthesis, as I've already mentioned, is regulated by the clock. It can get ready with all of its photosynthetic machinery. So it's ready to hit the ground running when daylight happens and starch as well. So throughout the night, the plant doesn't just switch off. It actually uses the nighttime period for growing and it can know the exact length of the night time. So it knows exactly how long it's got to do its growing. And it can predict if you've got a really short night, it can predict that it's got to grow really quickly and utilize the available starch because it's only got a short amount of time to grow. Whereas if you have the same plant under a longer night, it will actually take its time and use the starch more slowly because it knows it's got a longer night in which to grow. This is absolutely fascinating. It's a whole sort of secret inner world of wheat that I I never really knew existed. But the one thing I do know about wheat is that it's got a lot of genes. I've done an episode recently where we talk about how humans have just over 20,000 genes and wheat has over 100,000 genes because it's kind of evolved in this really complex way. It's like, is it, am I right? It's like three different ancestral plants that have all smushed themselves together. So this seems like it's going to be quite complicated in terms of controlling all these genes. Like how how does that all work? Yeah, you're exactly right. I think um, the genetics of the circadian clock in plants is already more complicated than it is in humans because you have to orchestrate all of these independent clocks in every single cell. And in wheat, you have the added complication that hexaploid wheat, which was formed from three genes merging into one, basically hybridizing into one plant. It means that for every one gene in a diploid plant, you have three sister genes. And in one way, this means that the plant has more genes to play with. So from an evolutionary point of view, you can devote one gene to um, its original function and still develop new functions for these extra genes. And this is something that we're interested in seeing. How often does this happen? And how often are the three sets actually conserved? And is it useful to have three copies just in case you lose one? Does it give the plant um, extra security? And we were interested in this from a circadian point of view. And what we were wondering is where you have these three sister copies of the same gene, are they always expressed in the morning? Are they always expressed in the evening? Or are they allowed to start having different functions? And what did you find? Because this seems like a, a hell of a challenge. If, if not just you've got one clock in wheat, you've got like three clocks and three different sets of genes. How's it running? So what we found was a complicated picture. So as always, there's never a simple answer. But what we found were some sets of three genes where you have exactly equal balance between the three copies in each of the subgenomes. So in those cases, it seems to be really important that that gene is always expressed very precisely at the same time in the day. 
In other cases, it seems to be that one copy said, I've got this covered, you know, you two can take some time off. Like I've got, I'm going to take on responsibility for the role of this gene. I'll do the morning shift. <laughs> exactly. And what you see then is a slow decrease in the amplitude of expression of those genes. And then in still other sets of three genes, you've got genes that are originally the same gene in these three ancestral species. But now one gene is being expressed in the middle of the day and the other one is being expressed in the middle of the night. So we don't know what they're doing yet, but clearly they're being allowed to have very different functions. Wow. So that literally is like, I'm doing the morning shift, you're doing the late shift, guys. Yeah. And the fancy name for this is uh, neo-functionalization, but it's exactly like you're saying, partitioning roles between the three genes. This is just absolutely wonderful. But, you know, it's, it's very interesting. It's very cool. I'm sure it's very cool science. You can get some nice papers out of this. But we know that, obviously, the climate is changing and wheat is an important crop, as we said. So, I mean, this is good knowledge to have. But how can we use this knowledge to actually do more to protect wheat as a crop and, and make it into a, a more sustainable, resilient crop? Can we tinker with this? What's going on? So one idea that we have is, I don't know if you're familiar with humans being larks or owls, like different body clocks to match different jobs, perhaps. And we have the same idea in wheat. So if we can find a particular variety of wheat that really has a body clock suited to a particular latitude or growing region, then it's very much choosing the right plant for the right place to make sure the plants are happy and increase yields. It's been shown that if you have um, a plant and you put that plant in an environment in which it's well matched to the external day-night cycle, you have high yields and higher photosynthetic rate, and it's able to outcompete other plants that have mismatched body clocks. So flowering time and, like I've mentioned before, resilience to drought, salt stress, nitrogen availability, all of these things we might be able to find candidate crops at particular locations. And actually, inadvertently throughout human history, we've selected for varieties that have higher yields or varieties that we like because they flower at a particular time. And unknowingly, farmers have actually been selecting for clock genes. Actually, one well-known clock gene allowed for the development of what you might know as spring wheat. So there are two different growing seasons for wheat. So there are wheat that farmers put in in the autumn and it sits in the fields over winter and flowers very early in the spring and then there's spring wheat which you can put in at the spring and it will flower in the summer and it's actually a knockout for a circadian clock gene which has allowed spring wheat to be developed because it doesn't have to wait for the daylight increases before it will flower so they've selected for genes which give the plant a, a circadian rhythm that really um, excels in a particular environment. So these things are all happening and it's whether we can optimise them further by having an actual biological understanding of what the clock is doing in wheat. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast. Find us online at geneticsunzipped.com and on Twitter at geneticsunzip. And while you're at it, why not tell a friend so more people can discover and enjoy the show. We've just heard how geneticists are working to make wheat a more reliable crop for the future. 
Now we're going to be moving from the bread to the fishes and the future of fish farming. Across the world, over 3 billion people, or nearly half the global population, rely on fish as a significant source of animal protein. And since 2012, more of our fish has come from aquacultural fish farms rather than catching wild fish. As the global population continues to grow, farmed fish are going to become an increasingly important protein source. But fish farming is not without its own issues. The amount of freshwater fish eaten each year continues to increase, but freshwater is already a scarce resource and one that's only going to become more precarious as climate change intensifies. Farmed fish need to be fed, and so in the case of predatory species like salmon, we currently have to catch fish from the wild to feed the farmed salmon. Dr Tarang Mehta is a molecular evolution scientist at the Erlam Institute, who has been looking at future-proofing one group of fishes in particular, tilapia, which is already a hugely important fish for people all around the world, as I found out during our chat. So we primarily look at tilapia, which is the second most farmed fish in the whole world, just behind carp, and provides a really, really important resource for nutrition in a lot of developing countries. And so a lot of our research is aimed at tilapia within Africa, of which there are the majority of the species of which they are native. So tilapia is a group of species of fish. Yeah, that's right. So tilapia is a um, is a cichlid. We've always been quite interested in cichlids, not even just us, but a lot of scientists, just because they're a prime example of an adaptive radiation and really the most specious modern example um, of an adaptive radiation. Um, so, so by radiation, what are we talking about? We're not talking about like Superman fish fish giving off energy. No, when we talk about radiation, so an adaptive radiation is basically just the rapid diversification of a single lineage from a common ancestor into loads of species that can inhabit a variety of environments or use a variety of resources. And therefore they then differ in traits required to exploit those resources. So they're really good at breaking off into separate species. Yeah. And so within the last kind of 10 million years, one or few ancestral lineages of cichlid fish have independently radiated into well over 2,000 species. 10 million years and you get 2,000 species? It is off the scale. And so to kind of put that into perspective, in basically the same two to three million years, it took for only 14 species of finch bird species to evolve in the Galapagos, around a thousand cichlid species evolved in Lake Malawi alone. That's bonkers. Darwin should have gone to Lake Malawi. He would have had a field day. <laughs> I mean, yeah, indeed. If Darwin did dabble in going a little bit deep water, then he would have explored something quite incredible. So we're talking about tilapia. What did tilapia look like? Because I, I think when I visited the States, I may have eaten tilapia as just a generic white fish. Yeah. But what does it look like when it's not on a plate? Yeah, so you, you're likely to have eaten tilapia. You can get tilapia in the UK as well. Tilapia is quite a, it's quite a large fish. It grows to something like 50, 60 centimetres kind of in size. It's a bit sad, really, because it doesn't look like the really nice 
kind of cichlids, which are really fanciful and colourful um, and have really funky kind of mouths and eyes and stuff like that. It's just a kind of standard grey looking fish. And if they've come from, or if a lot of these cichlids are in the Great Lakes, does that mean they're all freshwater fish? No, not at all. So tilapias are quite different and there's roughly 50 or so species of tilapia and they're mainly freshwater but then you get some and what's quite cool then about tilapia is you get some which are highly adapted as well so you can find some offshoots almost of tilapias which are found in quite salty waters murky waters quite alkaline waters you get a really cool offshoot of tilapia called alkalapia grayami which is a small fish it's not oh, um, we're talking about a few centimeters here is it called alkalapia tilapia yeah that's a great name <laughs> alkalapia tilapia that sounds like a, a wizard spell it does indeed i mean they're almost wizardry in the way that they've adapted to their environment so they're found in quite crazy lakes some which are in the north of tanzania and then the south of kenya and we're talking about temperatures which are above 40 degrees super salty, super alkaline. And essentially they go off into the kind of the middle of the lake to quickly feed during the day, but then quickly have to swim back into kind of slight cooler waters. Otherwise they will just cook. Yeah. Salty above 40 degrees. They they come pre-boiled, pre-seasoned. Oh, indeed. And then they've got, what's quite cool is they've got a specialized esophagus to deal with being in alkaline waters, because obviously if the alkaline water then mixes with their the acid within their stomach, then they will be no more, basically. So they've got incredible adaptation in that way. And so they're quite cool in a way. So not in terms of food sustainability and eating in general, but if we can learn how fish, which are really closely related to the tilapias, which do grow to such a large size, and quite quickly, if we can adapt them to non-freshwater environments, then we can obviously breed them in non-freshwater environments. I mean, freshwater is becoming quite scarce now and already doesn't really make up that much of the water in the world, something like two and a half percent only. So this is where your work as a geneticist and an evolution scientist comes in. So how domesticated are the tilapia that people eat because when we think of say farming cattle or farming chickens these are genetically now very different from their wild ancestors of course and yeah. you get a few strains that are common all around the world is everyone farming when people farm tilapia are they farming the same tilapia is there a lot of diversity how different is it from a wild fish it's a really good question so and there's a big problem related to that as well at the same time. So primarily everybody's always focused on the Nile tilapia because it was the one which was wild caught kind of at first and it was grown and it grew to such a large size and to a decent weight as well. And everybody liked it. And so what everybody started to do was to take the Nile tilapia and then dump it in water bodies in and around parts of East Africa. What decade are we talking about? Um, I mean, this is not so, so long ago. So we're talking only just a few decades ago. Have people 
not learned that you can't just <laughs> dump a whole bunch of fish and expect there not to be problems? Yeah, exactly. I mean, when they hybridize so readily and tilapias do hybridize very, very readily, you then have a massive, massive problem. So essentially that renders them vulnerable to genetic swamping. So what is genetic swamping? Well, you you then start to lose the natural genetic diversity that exists within a population because they hybridize. So you then essentially swamp the natural genetic diversity that exists within, say, the Nile tilapia population of one, because then if they start mixing with another tilapia species, which is not so adapted and doesn't grow to a great size, you create horrible hybrids, which will then take over the whole water body. And then you will lose the natural population then as well at the same time. And so that's been a major problem within East Africa as well. And so some of our efforts have looked at trying to sample what exists within different lakes in East Africa. So what species already exist there, whether we see any evidence of hybrids and hybridization as well, and almost then using that to then inform farmers of what exists there and what really should not be going on. So we shouldn't be introducing, say, Nile tilapia into a particular lake where we could have Mozambique. We want to keep those two fish separate. You said tilapia was the second most important commercial fish? Uh, second most farmed fish in the world, just behind carp, yes. That's bonkers. So yeah, global tilapia production I think reached something like 6 million tonnes for the first time in 2020. And so it really highlights the kind of huge growth in freshwater aquaculture, but more so tilapia as well. So tilapia is a fantastic fish in the developing world. It's heavily farmed in Africa, Asia, and also South America. Well, the two things I know about fish farming that are common issues, when I'm thinking of fish farming, I'm, by the way, I'm thinking of like Scottish salmon. So it might, it might be quite different from tilapia. But it's one, you've got to collect all the food for these fish. So you've got to catch a load of fish to feed the fish that you then eat. And two is that then you get these diseases, these parasites that leave these highly dense populations of fish in these tunnels of nets and go into the wild. Is that the same thing with tilapia as it is with like salmon farming? No, not at all. It's another allure, I think, of tilapia as well is they don't require kind of high protein fish meal like what salmon does. Tilapia could quite happily survive off what's kind of pre-existing and almost in a way some of the kind of waste which is in the water as well. And it's so much cheaper to then farm this fish. And then if you then think beyond the kind of Nile tilapia and ones which are adapted to environments which are a little bit harsher, it then also becomes a lot cheaper to have this fish where it doesn't need to be freshwater. And so kind of in that context, our actually like wider research not only looks at the genetic analysis of wild tilapia, natural tilapia, which are found within and Africa, but we also look at improved strains of tilapia. So the genetically improved farm tilapia, otherwise known as GIFT, that was actually developed by Worldfish. And they also developed another strain, which was called the 
genetically improved Abasa Nartilapia, known as Giant. <laughs> Geneticists do love their acronyms. I know, I know, yeah. And so this was developed by an organization called Worldfish. So they're a non-profit research and innovation organization. And so to put it into perspective, around 50% of tilapia, which is farmed globally, comes from a gift. So these are genetically improved fish. Yep, that's correct. What are we improving them with? Uh, are we giving them like Steve Rogers super serum? <laughs> Do you know what? I kind of, I wish it was something like that and it would be a great story, but it's, I wouldn't say it's boring. It's, the way they created it is actually quite cool. And so Gift is a faster growing strain of Nile tilapia, which is basically derived from a breeding program comprising wild Nile tilapia from a few places. So essentially they were selecting for growth, faster growing and higher survival rates. Is this all conventional breeding methods? This is all conventional, yeah. So don't really be duped by when it says genetically improved. There's no GM or anything like that. This is straight up breeding program. And so what they found was in the eighth and ninth generation of the giant program, they grew 28% faster and heavier than the commercial strain. So that's like the difference between a normal chicken and a broiler chicken is that they grow super big, super fast. Indeed. And now we've got this for tilapia. Does this mean though that we're now getting, if they're all coming from one breeding program, does that mean we're kind of getting a monoculture and making them more susceptible to disease, particularly if we're shipping them all around the world? Uh, yeah, we can do, yeah. I mean, there was cases of tilapia late virus and, and potentially having an impact on gift. But again, they've been selected for higher survival rates as well. So yeah, potentially over time, this could be a problem. But again, with our research, what we can do is we can compare, so we can sequence the genomes as we've done of gift and now giant, but then also wild tilapia and compare to see where certain regions are for or markers for let's say disease like the tilapia lake virus and so we know the region associated with the tilapia lake virus so we can monitor and track that and in one way what's fantastic is we can then compare the genomes of these improved strains with wild strains to then see how we can improve breeding programs. So can we then leverage traits from wild populations such as salinity tolerance, so the, the ability to hang around and survive in salty waters and then bring that over into things like gift and improve it further. And when you say bring over, is that again normal breeding or is that... Breeding, okay. yeah, normal breeding. And is, are you able to do that because you say that all of these tilapia and cichlids in general they they're very good at branching off into different species finding their own niche so you've kind of already got a natural library i'm a fly researcher formerly so we as fruit flies we literally would just bombard them with things that cause mutants and now we have a library of these weird mutated flies and we can order them online it was fantastic yeah. on the post <laughs> but you've got nature's kind of done that for you you've already got your huge assortment of different traits you can pick and mix from it has. is it just because they can all still they're still so closely related that they can still hybridize that allows you to just rely on selective breeding to pick and choose 
No, indeed. Yeah, we can rely on selective breeding and the way, yes, that you describe it as nature's already done the job for us is the perfect way of talking about cichlids in general as it's already been screened. Yeah, you just got this natural library of mutants. <laughs> yeah. And final question, what's getting you super excited at the moment for kind of the future of cichlids with your work in genetics? What, what's, what's the cool new stuff that's happening? I think it's the, the push now towards the food sustainability work and really trying to get down to the nitty gritty kind of regulatory networks and genetics behind adapting to something which is relevant towards food sustainability. So looking at kind of salinity tolerance and temperature tolerance and how some like tilapias, which are a cichlid, have adapted to such an extreme environment and some just trundle along in their nice fresh water but grow to a super size. So ones that remain super small but manage to survive in super temperate waters and then ones that want a kind of lavish lifestyle and nice fresh water then that everybody, well not everybody, but quite a few people love to meet. And it'll be cool to get down to the genetics and identify the markers for some of these adaptations. And essentially what gets me dead excited about it is just finding just these fine scale differences that drive such major phenotypes for what are pretty cool fish. Because everyone's, everyone's always like, well, we've got such massive problems in the world with human health and disease. Why don't you work on human genetics? But we can learn so much from looking down the tree and looking at fish and, you know, we can't test we shouldn't be testing much in humans, um, whereas we can test stuff in fish and there's such a tractable system for testing some of these things and we can learn so much in the non-coding space by looking in fish that is translatable to humans, not only a level of health and disease, but then stuff which is important for developing countries and providing food and nutrition on the plate for a lot of these places. That's all for now. Thanks to our guests, Drs. Hannah Rees and Tarang Mehta from the Earlham Institute. We'll be back next time where Kat Arney will be looking at how genes have shaped human evolution. And if this episode has whet your appetite and you want to learn more about the genetics of your food and the future of agriculture, keep an eye out for a special bonus episode on our feed next week all about the genetics of rice. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, music credits and everything else, head over to geneticsunzipped.com. You can find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip and please do take a moment to leave us a rating in the Spotify app or review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference and it helps more people discover the show. This episode of Genetics Unzipped was written, presented and produced by me, Dr. Sally LePage. It's made by First Create the Media for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learner societies dedicated to promoting research, training, teaching and public engagement in all areas of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard, the logo was designed by James Mayle, and the audio production was by Emma Werner. 
Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye.